Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. This morning we will be reading the second half of Psalm 22. For those of you who were here this past Friday, we considered the first half of this psalm as a psalm that Jesus experienced on Good Friday. And this morning we are going to be considering the second half of this psalm. So we'll be reading from verse 21b, so the second half of verse 21 through the end of this psalm. So Psalm 22, beginning in the second half of verse 21. Please uh, pay careful attention, for this is God's holy, inspired word. David says, You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him. But he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even the one who cannot keep himself alive, posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this morning. Well, what scripture passages, what uh, scenes or images come to mind when you think of the resurrection? The resurrection of Christ. My assumption is that Psalm 22 and corporate worship, where, we're, where we are right now, do not, do not make your short list. But this morning, this Easter morning, as we think about, as we celebrate the resurrection, we'll be considering Psalm 22 and we'll be considering the significance of moments like this, corporate worship. Now, we love stories of reversal. We love hearing stories of people who go from rags to riches. People who are in grave danger and then are delivered. People who are, are severely sick or diseased and are healed. Well, Psalm 22 depicts the greatest reversal ever known to man. The reversal from Good Friday to Easter morning. If you were with us two days ago on Good Friday, we 
considered at our service, the first half of Psalm 22 as being a psalm that Jesus experienced as he hung on that cross on Good Friday. But the second half of this psalm, from verse 21b onward, is a psalm about Easter Sunday. It's a psalm about Jesus' resurrection, exaltation, and glorification. Now you'll see in the title of this psalm that this psalm is a psalm of David. David was the original author of Psalm 22. And so as we read in verse 21b, David says, You have delivered me, or more literally, you have answered me, saved me from the horns of the wild oxen. David is, is praising God for God's salvation and deliverance from his sufferings, from his enemies. And then in verses 25 and 26, uh, David speaks about performing his vows before the Lord. David speaks about how the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. And you think to yourself, what what is David David speaking about? Vows, eating. Well, in the Old Testament, oftentimes when individuals were in distress, they would make vows before God. If God delivered them, they would then perform their vows by uh, performing a sacrifice at the temple. And after the the sacrifice was offered, they would hold a great feast. And the individual would would invite the poor, the afflicted, their servants, sometimes even the prosperous, the Levites, to this feast. So this is the original historical setting of the second half of Psalm 22. David is performing his vows by offering a sacrifice and holding a feast. And at this feast... You'll notice that that David is functioning almost as as if he's a worship leader. He's calling this holy congregation to praise God over this shared meal, over this feast. Well, insofar as Jesus is the greater David, this psalm speaks about Jesus' deliverance. It speaks about Jesus' resurrection. But more than that, it also speaks about how the resurrected Christ serves as our worship leader, leading us in praises of God over this great feast, over this great meal. This is the image that I'd like us to break down this morning, how this resurrected Christ serves as our worship leader, calling us, calling us to lift our voices, glorify our God over this great feast. We see in this psalm that our resurrected Christ cares cares very much about worship, divine worship, holy worship. This morning, I'd like us to consider three things specifically. First, we'll look at the resurrection of Christ here in Psalm 22. And then second, we'll consider how the resurrected Christ serves as our worship leader. And then third, we'll consider how the resurrected Christ feeds and nourishes our soul. Well, it may not be immediately obvious that Psalm 22 speaks of Christ's resurrection. When we think of Psalm 22, we we oftentimes think of Good Friday, but we don't oftentimes think of Easter Sunday when we read Psalm 22. So first, I'd like us to consider how Psalm 22, particularly the second half of Psalm 22, is a psalm 
about Jesus's resurrection. Now, if you look with me at the second half of verse 21, David says, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Now, again, as we considered two days ago, uh, wild oxen, that's a metaphor. That's a metaphor for, for great suffering. That's a metaphor for David's enemies. And David says, you have rescued me from the horns of, of the wild oxen. Now, the word for rescue literally means answer. Uh, you may actually see a footnote in, in your Bibles where it says that this could be more literally rendered as answer. So David is saying, you have answered me by saving me from the horns of the wild oxen. Now, notice the reversal between verse 2 and verse 21. So if you uh, look down a few lines in Psalm 22 to verse 2, David laments. He says, Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. I'm not silenced. In verse 2, David is praying. He's crying. He's groaning. But yet God is silent. God is not answering his pleas and petitions but then in verse 21, God answers. You have answered. You have saved me from the horns of the wild ox. And notice the reversal that we see contained in this psalm. Well, on Good Friday, we know that Jesus' uh, prayers went unanswered. Jesus' cries, Jesus' groanings went unheard by his father as his father's ears were plugged with the sins of his bride. But yet, we know that on Easter morning, God answered Jesus by raising him from the dead. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 4. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Did you catch that? God answered Jesus with a declaration. On Easter morning, God declared Jesus to be the victorious Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. And so Psalm 22 is is not only a a psalm about Good Friday, but it's also a psalm about Easter Sunday. This psalm is a psalm about Christ, both in his passion and in the glory of his resurrection. Well, what is the work, what is the ministry of of this resurrected Christ? We'll now turn to consider how how this resurrected Christ serves as our worship leader. Now, in every verse, in verses 22 through 32, the word praise um, is found, except for verse 24. So in verses 22 through 32, we find the word praise contained in every verse except verse 24. As a consequence, then, praise or worship is the dominant theme in these verses. Now, this praise, this worship, is not merely, uh, is not, is not individual praise. It's not private praise. This praise and worship is corporate praise. It's corporate worship. For instance, look with me at verses 22 and 23. I will tell of your name to my brother's in the midst of the congregation. Psalmist goes on to say, You who fear the Lord, all you offspring of Jacob, all you offspring of Israel, 
And then verse 25, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. This is corporate worship. We see that this corporate worship also has a global dimension to it. As we see in verse 27, all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Not only that, this corporate global worship spans to successive generations. As we see in verses 30 and 31, posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. So this psalm is very much about the corporate praise of God in the midst of this holy congregation. It's about a, a, a worship that, that, that's global in its, in its reach, uh, a worship that, that spans to successive generations. Now, who is the I in this psalm? Look at verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the, the congregation, I will sing your praises. Who is the I? Who is the speaker in these verses? It can't ultimately be David, because David never experienced what we just read in verse 27. David never experienced the families of the nations worshiping Yahweh. Listen to what the author to the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. The author says, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, and here is a quotation from Psalm 22, verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Notice what the author of the Hebrews is doing there. He's telling us that verse 22, and by extension the whole second half of this psalm, are Jesus' words. Jesus is the I in Psalm 22. Jesus is the one who speaks of his Father's name to his brothers. Jesus is the one who calls you his brother. Jesus is the one who lifts his voice up to praise his Father in the midst of this holy assembly. Jesus is our worship leader, according to Psalm 22. Now you may be asking yourself at this, at this point, well, where do we go to experience this kind of worship? This corporate global worship where Jesus is our leader, where Jesus is the one who calls us to praise our God. Notice here in Psalm 22, uh, Jesus says, All you who fear the Lord, all offspring of Jacob, all of Israel, praise and glorify God. Where do we go to receive this call to worship from Jesus himself? Well, if we stay in the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews answers this question for us. So, 
um, about 10 chapters later in Hebrews chapter 12, the author to the Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29, he, he explains for us what happens in New Covenant corporate worship. What happens when the people of God gather together on Sundays, on Resurrection Day? And he reminds these Christians, these Jewish Christians, that when they come together on Sundays, uh, they are not coming to Mount Sinai. He says, but you have not come to Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai here is a symbol for the Old Covenant. He's reminding these Jewish Christians that when they come together for worship on Sundays, they're not gathering for Old Covenant worship. They are New Covenant Christians and thus are assembled for New Covenant worship. Worship, which is why then in verse 22 of, of Hebrews 12, the author continues and says, But you have come to Mount Zion. And Mount Zion is a symbol for the new creation, for heaven itself. So listen to what the author of Hebrews says in verses 22 through 24. He says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, whose blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Notice what the author to Hebrews is saying here. He's reminding these Jewish Christians that when they gather each Lord's Day, They are, in a very real sense, ascending the spiritual Mount Zion. They are going to heaven itself. And when they gather with 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 other people, he's telling them to not forget that the angels are present. Boys and girls, the author here is saying that when we gather for corporate worship, innumerable angels are in our midst. The author says that when we gather for worship, The spirits of the righteous who have been made perfect are present. The cloud of witnesses, those those individuals who've gone before us, are present. We are in the presence of God himself, the judge of all the earth, and we're being led by Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, who calls us, his people, to lift our voices in praises to our God. This is what the author to the Hebrews is reminding these Christians. Now it's Important, I think, and helpful for us to step back and consider for a moment the context behind the book of Hebrews. The author is writing, as I mentioned before, to these Jewish Christians, and these Jewish Christians are contemplating going back to the types and shadows of the Old Covenant. They are tempted uh, to leave Mount Zion for Mount Sinai. And you may wonder, well, why would they do that? Why would they be tempted to go back? to the religion of the Old Covenant. Well, these Jewish Christians were living under the threat of persecution. They likely were meeting on the Lord's Day in homes for worship. They may have left friends and family as they converted to to Christianity. They were now following a priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom they had never physically met. They were trusting in a sacrifice that they never experienced. 
and they're looking across the street to their Jewish friends and possibly family members who are gathering in the opulence of this grand temple that's aesthetically pleasing, who have a, a physical, tangible priest and mediator that they can interact with and, and sacrifices that they can experience. And these Jewish Christians are growing weary with the simplicity of new covenant worship. They're growing nostalgic for the past. This is why the author to the Hebrews is saying what he's saying here in Hebrews 12. He's reminding them that when you strip back the, the outward simplicity of new covenant worship, something completely and utterly profound is happening. We're on Mount Zion. We're in the presence of angels, the spirits of the righteous who've been made perfect. Jesus himself is our worship leader. And we ourselves might be growing weary of the simplicity of new covenant worship. We think about worship in our own context. We don't gather in a grand cathedral. We don't have stained glass windows. We don't have incense. We don't have the bells and whistles of worship. We don't have on the other side of the aisle uh, a, a, a grand uh, media production or worship set. We emphasize the ordinary means of grace, and these means of grace of the preaching and reading of God's word, the administration of simple bread, wine, and water oftentimes feel very ordinary. Confessing our sins, confessing our Catholic Christian faith, singing psalms and hymns in which the, the, the voices of the congregation is the main instrument, this seems very simple, seems very ordinary. But yet, the author is reminding us this morning that when we gather in moments like this, something profound is happening. We aren't just gathering in the midst of 30, 40, 50 other people. We're in the presence of God, angels, those who've gone before us. Jesus is calling you to worship. You don't receive a call to worship ultimately from me or from your elders, but Jesus himself, through his spirit and through his word, calls you into God's presence, the judge of all the earth. Which is why then at the end of this section in Hebrews chapter 12, the author says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with awe and reverence. If we truly understand the nature of new covenant worship, we should be filled with gratitude, awe, and reverence for what is happening in this moment? What is happening when we go through this heavenly liturgy? And so let me ask you, what, what is your view of worship? Do you have the same view of worship as Psalm 22 has, or as the author to the Hebrews has? Do you view moments like this as holy and sacred, or is this a time where you just continue to go through the motions, you put your time in for one hour a week? What is your view of worship? Christ, the resurrected Christ, is our worship leader. Well, we also see that this resurrected Christ also leads us in worship over a feast, over a meal. Or to put it another way, our resurrected Christ feeds and nourishes our soul. Now, I've mentioned at the beginning that the context, the original historical context here, is a sacrificial meal. David was performing his vows through a uh, sacrifice. Then after the sacrifice, he held a feast. And over this feast, he's leading the people of Israel in worship. There are 
at least a couple references in the second half of this psalm to eating. Verse 26, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Verse 29, all the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. This is a feast. This is a sacrificial meal. Now, throughout Scripture, we see a very strong connection between Jesus and this theme of feasting. When you consider the earthly ministry of our Lord, one thing that you will quickly come away with is that his ministry was marked not by fasting, but by feasting. In fact, this is one of the main criticisms that the Pharisees leveled against him. Jesus, in that very famous story, took a a few loaves of bread, a few fish, and he multiplied them so that he could feed a crowd of 5,000 individuals. Jesus, as we know, instituted a meal. A meal. A meal of bread and wine for his church to celebrate while he is physically absent. In Luke chapter 24, Luke's account of the first Easter Sunday Luke tells us that Jesus spent, the resurrected Jesus spent this first Easter Sunday preaching. He preached a Christ-centered sermon from the Old Testament to a, a couple of his disciples, and then he broke bread with these disciples and revealed his identity over this broken bread. The apostles seem to interpret this example of Jesus on this first Easter Sunday as being paradigmatic or normative for how we should spend each successive resurrection day. Because in the book of Acts, the pattern that we see is that the early church gathers on the first day of the week to hear the word preached, to break bread in the Lord's Supper, and enjoy the fellowship or communion of the saints. And then, of course, we know that our great hope that we're looking forward to on the other side Uh, of this age, this present evil age, is having a seat at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So throughout Scripture, we see uh, Jesus being connected to this theme of feasting. So when we look at Psalm 22 and see uh, this, this historical context of a feast, of a sacrificial meal, this is deeply symbolic. This shows us that our resurrected Christ desires to feed and nourish our souls in the context of corporate worship and praise. So when we look at verse 26, a verse that I've already alluded to, where the psalmist says, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied, the promise that's here for us is that when we feel like David felt in the first half of this psalm, when we feel as if we've been forsaken and abandoned by our God, when we feel as if God is so far from saving us, So far from my groaning, we can know that Christ, our resurrected Christ, promises that we will eat and be satisfied. Now, this doesn't mean that he promises we'll have a steak for dinner. He's saying that we'll be spiritually nourished, refreshed through him as we gather with the people of God. I love how our catechism speaks of the Lord's Supper. It says that as surely as you receive from the hand who serves you the bread and cup of the Lord, so surely you can know that Jesus feeds, nourishes, and refreshes your soul unto everlasting life. 
Imagine you have a busy day at work, you skip lunch, you come home, get dinner on the table, you're about to sit down. Uh, you're ready for dinner at that moment. You're famished. You need to eat. Well, that's sort of how we should feel at the end of our weeks. We should feel ready for the Lord's Day, in need of spiritual refreshment, in need of a spiritual banquet through the Word and the sacraments. So our Christ, our resurrected Christ, is not only our worship leader, but he feeds and nourishes our souls. Well, Congregation of Christ, this psalm is indeed a very fitting psalm for us to consider this Easter morning. Not only does it speak about the glories of our Lord's resurrection, but it also speaks about the profundity of moments like this, corporate worship. Let us pray. Merciful Father, we thank you that you have declared your Son to be the victorious Son of God in power according to his resurrection from the dead. Uh, We pray, O Lord, that we would be cognizant of the good news of this empty grave as we continue on in this earthly pilgrimage. We thank you that by virtue of this resurrection, we have been raised and seated with Christ in the heavenly